Does it still amaze you? I found myself sitting there listening and and just, uh, I mean, I guess in one sense, when a period of time has passed, um, there's a there's an edge of intensity that's that's, that's removed. But um, I just found myself sitting there praying, uh, Lord, I want your grace to to still amaze me. And I think back at the moment when when it overwhelmed me and. And I knew what it felt like to carry the burden of sin, and then, and then the very next moment, have it, have it removed. It was, it was a, it was an amazing experience. And I would say probably one of the most well-known and beloved songs ever written is a song about grace. You would say the verse John three sixteen, and if I would say what song, what Christian song does everyone know? You would say amazing. Grace. It's it's sung at funerals, at military events, and many more. And you know that more than likely that it was written by a man who encountered God's grace, John John Newton. And and he was a man that knew that he needed grace. His nickname was the Great Blasphemer. I mean, he he, he had a testimony that was the opposite of 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 someone who who followed God. He was a wicked man at his own testimony. He had many many jobs. Um, you probably remember his testimony from, from John Adams or the, the little, I don't know whether it was a movie or a series that they did on, on John Adams. But at one point in his life, he, he sank so low that he was even a servant on a slave trader's ship. And, and yet Newton wasn't raised that way. He was raised by a Christian mother. And the scripture that she sowed in his heart haunted him. I mean, he knew that he wasn't living for for God, he knew he wasn't a Christian, and and that haunted him even in his unbelief, in his unbelief. And and to respond to that, whenever that his conscience began to be troubled, he would he would openly reject the teachings that he remembered. He would even lead others, other sailors, into unbelief if they even had a glimmer of of, of faith in in their heart. He would he would do everything he could to to snuff it out. He blasphemed God, and. Um, Newton thought even if the Bible was true, if anyone was beyond saving, it was, it was surely him. You may have felt that. You may feel that this morning. You may look at me or you may look at other people here and, and you may get the, the perception that outwardly we look like nice, neat, moral, clean little Christians. But, but in reality, we're no different than, than you or anybody else on, on the planet. We're, we're fallen, broken people that don't have a heart for God or didn't before Christ came and, and gave us a new one. And, and Newton felt that way. And on his, one of his journeys, he found a New Testament. He began to read the Gospel of Luke. And he read the passage in Luke eleven thirteen. If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask Him? That was the passage that that awoken him. In March 21st, 1748, Newton experienced the gift of salvation for himself. He, he wrote in his own words, I quote, On that day the Lord sent from on high and delivered me out of deep waters. And many years later, Newton wrote in his diary about his salvation anniversary on March 21st, 1805, many years after that, 1748, he wrote... Quote, not well able to write, because he was old, 
But I endeavor to observe the return of this day with humiliation, prayer, and praise. Only God's amazing grace could and would take a rude, profane, slave-trading sailor and transform him into a child of God. Newton never ceased to stand in awe of God's work in his life. And for the Sunday evening services, Newton used to write new hymns, which were from lessons that, that he'd heard in the, in the Scriptures that, that morning. And, and he amassed some 280 of them. And, and one of his good friends and, and fellow church members, William Cowper, published those hymns in, in what's called the, the Only Hymns. And one of the most famous ones we're talking about, Amazing Grace, came from, grew out of David's exclamation of 1 Chronicles 17, 16 through, through 17. Why do you think that song is so, so well loved? Well, everybody probably has heard it was written by John Newton and he was a slave trader and he was a really bad guy. I would say it's not because of the background, it's not even because of Newton, it's because you relate and I relate and everybody relates that grace is, uh, is amazing. How sweet the sound is the word grace. Grace when you expect judgment. Grace when you expect to be reviled. Grace when you expect the stiff arm of God and you, you hear in that word the open arms of God saying, come to me. That saved a wretch like me. You relate because you know in that song it's speaking truth about you. No one needs to tell you that you have fallen short. Grace is a word that's sweet to hear because we all understand we need it and it's truly amazing. And, and when we encounter it, I think it, it just takes our logical breath away. It seems unnatural because it, it, it acts, grace acts in the opposite way than, than which we deserve or what we expect. Do you, do you expect grace? you got an issue if, if you do. I don't expect that from God. Grace is, is favor that's unprovoked, unearned, unmerited, unforeseen. Its intention toward a person always results in a good action. There's, there's nothing in that person to warrant that disposition or act from, from God of grace. What makes it amazing to Newton, Newton and any of us is, is is we understand what we have earned and merited is, is hell. And in grace, listen, God just doesn't forgo what we should receive and render us neutral. God treats us as if, as if we had positive good, as if we deserve a righteous reward. He declares us righteous even though we're unrighteous. And we talked about that last week in, in justification by, by faith alone. So as I prayed about where to go, to, to talk about grace, grace alone this morning, I landed on Luke 19. And I want you to open your Bibles to Luke 19. And we're going to look at this, this first ten verses. And I picked it because it is the theme scene with the theme verse of the Gospel of, of Luke. It's, it's, a, it's a passage where Jesus demonstrates this grace in a purposeful and very profound way. I also pick it because I like onlys, okay? This is an event that's only recorded in the Gospel of Luke. And it's the story about Zacchaeus, who was a wee little man. And you sang that in Sunday school. 
this is only recorded in the Gospel of Luke. And it's where Zacchaeus encounters God's amazing grace. But there's some surprising elements that teach us about grace. Teach us how grace comes to us. Teach us how, how people respond to grace. And teach us the, the results of grace. And it teaches us what grace does, which is, which is saves. It, it, verse 10 of Luke 19 For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save. That which is lost is the key verse in Luke. It's it's, it's all of the Gospel's sub-themes culminating in this one story where Jesus declares the reason that He came to save. You've heard that before. Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost. It's, It's the conclusion of this story. So that's a pretty significant story. It's not just about a little short guy who climbed a sycamore tree. It unfolds a powerful declaration that Jesus makes about grace alone. And I want you to notice that this is, this is in the flow of the Gospel of Luke. And right before that, you've got this Christ-healing blind Bartimaeus, actually two blind men, but, but Luke says, names one and names the one called Bartimaeus. It's, and in that scene, you have a picture of man calling out for mercy to God. And, and you probably remember the story where Jesus is coming into Jericho. There was a certain blind man who sat by the road begging. And, and he, he hears a ruckus and there's a great crowd of people, a multitude. He can't see them, but he can hear their footsteps. And hearing the multitude, they tell him that it's Jesus of Nazareth. And he begins to cry out saying, Jesus, this is verse 38 of chapter 18, Son of David, have mercy on me. He knows who Jesus is. He attributes the messianic title to him and he cries out for mercy. So that's one scene. And now you come into Luke 19 with this scene about Zacchaeus, and it's a picture of God giving grace to those who don't deserve it and who aren't seeking it. So let's look at Luke 19, verses 1 through 10. It says, Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, who was a chief tax collector. That's a key. And he was rich. And he sought to see who Jesus was. But he could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore, it's a fig tree, to see him. For he was going to pass by that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today... I must stay at your house. And so he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled or complained, saying, He is gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor and And if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he also is the son of Abraham, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Oh, there's so much in this scene of ten little verses. I wish I had three hours to do it, but I don't. So let's get into it. Verse 1, Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now, that may strike you as 
as funny because how can Jesus enter and pass through Jericho? Well, there is old Jericho, and you remember that, where the walls came tumbling down, and there's the city that was built beside it. If you go to Israel today, you go right through the old Jericho road. You, you have to go, on, it's, it's not a tourist site, it's off the beaten path, and, and you have to go overlook a hill and down it, and you'll see the road was called the Jericho Road that leads up to Jerusalem. It's from the Dead Sea area. So you're below sea level and you're traveling over 2,000 plus feet up to, to Jerusalem. And Jesus enters the actual city now where people lived. And we're told that the path he took, which was the one that was most traveled, it was, went through the, the old city of Jericho up to Jerusalem, and he's got a crowd with him, pilgrims headed for Passover. You remember that's where he's going. And we're toward the end of the Gospel of Luke, so we're coming up to the point where Jesus is coming to the end of his ministry and he's going to the, going to the cross. And no doubt the crowds are growing. There are a lot of pilgrims going to Jerusalem. But Jesus is, is quite a figure. I mean, he just healed a blind man right before he, he came into the city. In fact, we're told here that the crowd is so large and so dense, there's this man named Zacchaeus who's, who's unable to get a look at what's, at what's going on due to his small size and, and the crowd he's unable to see. Now, Zacchaeus knows the town. He lives in the town. He's a, he's a leader in the town. And so he knows where the road goes. And so he goes and runs ahead to a tree that, that he is very familiar with, and he climbs up in that tree to where the crowds won't block his, his view. And then Jesus encounters him. There's actually three distinct scenes here. You'll find in verses 1 through 4, you've got, the, you've got this story being, being set up where Zacchaeus is seeking to, to see who Jesus is and, and what's going on. In verses 5 and 6, you find this encounter that Zacchaeus has with Jesus. And then in verses 7 through 10, you're, we're transported into, into Zacchaeus' house where they're having this lunch and this, in, this discussion that Jesus has with Zacchaeus and a testimony that Zacchaeus gives and a declaration that Jesus makes on, on that basis. So out of all of that, the theme is the grace of God. And I would say to you, there are four lessons about God's work of grace that you can find in Luke 19, verses 1 through 10. First of all, the first lesson is grace initiates. I'm going to show you that. The text is going to show you that in verses 1 through 6. Then you're going to see that grace offends. And then you're going to see grace bears fruit. And then we're going to see that grace saves. Praise the Lord. Let's look at the first one. Grace initiates. Now, these will come back up when I turn. Don't panic, okay? You'll have an opportunity to write it down again. Grace initiates, verses 1 through 6. So, in these first six verses, you're going to see the center circumstances. That's Zacchaeus. You're going to see the Savior's summons and then this new saint's response. Let's look at how grace initiates. Look, if you would, at verse 2. Here's the sinner's circumstances. It says, Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. And the text tells us some things about him. It tells us his name, which will be important. He tells us that he's a Jew. We know that from verse 9. And, and also that he is a chief tax collector. We're also told that he's rich. His territory 
Couldn't have been better for gaining, gaining wealth by taxes. He's a t- chief tax collector. Jericho was considered what was called a little paradise because of its oasis. And if you've ever been there, I mean, it is desolate. There's nothing. It's the Dead Sea, the Salt Sea. Nothing grows around there. It's totally arid. It doesn't even rain there. The rain that comes rains somewhere else and flows down into this into, through the wadis into this desert area, except where there's an oasis. And, and that's where Jericho was. There, was. there was water there, and that's the reason people gathered there for, and made their home there for thousands of years. Herod the Great used it as, a, as where his winter palace was. The climate was dry, and, and there were sycamore fig trees that were prized for their size and their shade, and, and their branches grew from the ground all the way up. You might picture like a giant crepe myrtle that's, that's there. And there was these 50-cent piece-sized yellow and red figs that grew on these, on these trees, which obviously were, were good, to, good to, to use. And Jericho was a place of wealth because of all that. It was a central trade route. It's where everybody had to come through. It contained a special tree that Josephus tells us about, the, the balsam tree known for healing properties. Now watch, this is because this is a lesson in economics. I wish our politicians were paying attention to the Bible right now. Now I've got your attention, don't I? So people came to Jericho because of its resources. They spent money there. And when they spent money... They, that created more jobs, and the more money the people had, the more commerce was done, and the more commerce was done, the more taxes to collect. Novel idea, isn't it? And Zacchaeus is the government. <laughs> and the more money that's spent, the more tax revenue is there. And Zacchaeus understood economics, and he's in a perfect place to get rich. And it says he was rich. That's what Zacchaeus did. It's the only place in the New Testament where someone is called a chief tax collector. He's not just a publican. He's a chief tax collector. Foreign bankers bought the privileges from the Romans to collect taxes in, in an area for, for a fee, and the Romans didn't care how they did it, which is why they were hated. And We talked about that even last week. But Zacchaeus was in an elevated... He's not just a normal tax collector... He's a superintendent. He's either a superintendent over many tax collectors, because the word's not used anywhere else in the, the, Old Test, in the New Testament. He's either a, tax, a chief tax collector, which has a bunch of people under him, kind of like a producer, and then sales reps if you're in a sales organization. He's at the top of the pyramid. Or it just means that because of the position that he's in, this is an elevated position because of so much wealth was in the city. And because of that, it says he was rich, plusios, abundant in wealth. You would translate this in English, filthy rich. Okay, this guy would would make a billionaire look look like chump change. He had power and position and prosperity, and we're told all about them. That's important. And verse three, he sought to see who Jesus was but could not because of the crowd. Now, I want you to notice that the text simply says he wanted to see who Jesus was. He wasn't seeking Jesus as the Messiah. That's not what it says. He wasn't seeking an audience with Jesus. 
He wanted to see who he was and what, what the crowd was gathering all about. That makes sense. I mean, you're the, you're the tax collector in the city. There's a big crowd that's there. You want to see what's going on. And that's simply what the text means. He was seeking to see. And Luke uses a play on words. Jesus has other plans. He's not just seeking to see. Jesus is seeking to save. And so you find the Savior's summons in verse in verse 5. After he runs ahead and climbs up the sycamore tree to see him because he was going to pass by that way. He knows which way the crowd is going to travel through the city. And look at verse 5. It says when Jesus came, now pay attention to this, to the place. The tree would have been along the road, probably limbs that hung over it, at least over the side, so he could see. He stops at the place, knowing exactly where Zacchaeus is. He looks up, it says. He calls him by name, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down. Can you imagine hearing your name called by Jesus? Now, I want you to notice there's nowhere where Jesus would have known who Zacchaeus is. This is a testimony of omniscience. He comes to the place where Zacchaeus is. He's walking along. He can't see Zacchaeus. He stops. He looks up and he calls him by name, Zacchaeus. And look at what he says. Hurry and come down. Make haste and come down. For today... I must stay at your house. It's hard to overemphasize the statement that Jesus makes here. This is no ordinary statement. This is not, hey man, what are you doing up there? Why don't you come down? You got something to eat? I want to go to your house today. That's not what Jesus is doing. In the simplest terms, it's a call to prepare for a guest. But the grammar and the, and the context, the messianic words that are used here, shows us it's much, much more. It's, it's a statement that's called a divine prerogative. It's the King of Heaven saying, Today, I must come to your house. It's the only place in the Gospels where Jesus ever invites Himself to a person's home. And the words that He uses are very important. If you go back to Luke 4, you would find these words where Jesus announces his messianic ministry. You remember, he goes into the synagogue, he takes up the great Isaiah scroll, and he says, he reads from Isaiah about the Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, to recover sight to the blind, blind Bartimaeus, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, the coming of the Messiah. Then he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and all eyes who were in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Today, I must come to your house. If you go a few verses later in Luke 4:43, Jesus says, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also. Therefore, am I sent? 
Jesus chooses his words particularly, carefully. He exhibits omniscience. He speaks Zacchaeus' name. He quotes words from, from messianic texts. He uses a divine prerogative. He says, Zacchaeus, he looks up knowing his name, today I must come to your house. Why? Look at verse 9. Jesus says at the very end, Today, salvation has come to this house because he is a son of Abraham. Why? For the Son of Man, the Messiah, has come to seek and to save that which is lost. This is a massive text tying together the Old and New Testament and the work of, of Christ. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your ears. Salvation has come to your house for this is why I came. The seeking, saving work of the Messiah is fulfilled And Zacchaeus is the target. He's the one who gets to put this on display. If you're here this morning without Christ, I want to tell you a few things. First of all, I want to say to you, Jesus knows exactly where you're at. It's no mistake that you're here this morning. Whether you're in a tree, you're in a pew, or wherever you're at when you're driving down the road listening to a radio program, Jesus knows exactly where you're at today. The second thing I want you to know is that He knows your name. He knew Brian Farrell long before September 24th, 1995. And He knows you, your name this morning, whether, whether it is outside of the kingdom or inside of the kingdom. And He knows your need. Just like he knew Zacchaeus' need. You may have come here for any number of reasons, like Zacchaeus just wanted to see what was going on, but, but Jesus knows exactly why you're here this morning. Now, I'd also say to you that Jesus says, Today, salvation is possible. If you're a believer, you've experienced this. Exactly what Zacchaeus has experienced. Your circumstances may have been different from his or mine or somebody else's, but you know. When you look back in your life, that you weren't trying really, really hard and looking for God. (laughs) You know in the mess and muck of your circumstances that you sing loudly with the song, I was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. You sing that with fervor, don't you? Lost people and blind people don't find their way on their own. Someone seeks them and someone saves them. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here with Zacchaeus the same thing that he did for you. And when Christ finds you, joy and obedience flood your soul. Look at Zacchaeus' response in verse 6. So he made haste. He came down. And he received him joyfully. He hurried, he came down, and he gladly received him. This, this joyfully received him, gladly received him. Luke's, Luke uses this word nine times. Chapter 1, verse 14. Chapter 8, verse 13. Chapter 10, verse 17. Chapter 13, verse 17. 15, 5, 15, 9, 15, 32, 19, 6, 19, 37. And it always denotes the joy that accompanies faith and salvation. I mean, there's so many things in this text, it's undeniable what is happening. 
Someone said something happened in the tree, didn't it? <laughs> he came down a different man than he went up. It says, Wesley wrote, Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke and the dungeon flame with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's exactly what you see Zacchaeus doing here. Zacchaeus responds to this divine command. Zacchaeus is just like any of you who've experienced salvation, full of joy, and you gladly receive Jesus' presence. Now think of the difference before salvation and after salvation. Did you want to draw near to Jesus before you knew that you were forgiven and your heart was free? Did you find delight being in church? Did you want to read the Bible? Did you want to be around Christians that you could, you could smell the aroma of Christ in their life, the ones that, that were the real deal? like Theda Lewis was to me, of course you didn't want to be around them. You were fearful of God. You, you avoided the church and the gospel. You had little or no interest. But once you encountered grace, you're filled with joy. And while you know you're unworthy, you want to be near God, even if it's on your face. Zacchaeus here is just like the demoniac of the, of the Gadarenes. You remember what Jesus had to say to him? No, you stay here. And you witness, he's trying to get in the boat and go with Jesus. And Zacchaeus made haste and came down and received him joyfully. He went where Jesus told him that they needed to go, which was into his, into his home. But look at this next scene, verse 7. It's a, it's a contrast. Here's grace initiates. I already went over that for you wasn't as quick on the pointer this morning. He responded quickly, he obeyed, and he was filled with joy. Here's what I want to show you, though. Grace offends. Verse 7 starts with a but. B.R. Lakin used to say that the churches, some churches are full of billy goats. They're butting everything. Yeah, but. Yeah, but. Yeah, pastor, but. But when they saw it, they all complained. Notice it's they all complained. Who's all? It's, it's the crowd. And notice that when they saw it, they all complained. And they, they, they draw a conclusion. They, they held a, a billy goat committee here, and, and they drew a conclusion saying, He has gone to be a guest. Who's he? That's Jesus. He has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. The committee rendered a judgment. Now, what are they offended about? They offended about because the grace wasn't offered to them? Jesus says today is the day of salvation. It's freely offered to the Pharisees. It's freely offered to Zacchaeus. It's freely offered to you this morning. They weren't offended because it wasn't available to them. What were they offended at? They were offended because Jesus receives sinners and eats with them. God's response to Zacchaeus, Jesus' response to Zacchaeus, is an affront to the crowd. Because it strikes at human pride. Grace does. Are you offended by grace? When you see God showing grace to another human being, do you think, you know what? I don't know that I would have done it that way. 
I think that they really need to, to show X, Y, and D, Z to prove that they're really, really serious before then they can be worthy to receive the grace of God. If that's what you think, your idea and concept of grace is unbiblical. Because grace justifies the ungodly. While you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. Grace meets you in the muck and the mire of your life. Grace meets you at the very bottom. Grace meets you whenever you've, you've been down in, in the mud and you've pulled it in on top of yourself and you're drowning. Grace takes the arm of God and reaches where you're at or reaches up in the tree and brings you out and sets your feet on a solid rock. Why would they grumble? Why would they, why would they complain? Notice they say something about Jesus and Zacchaeus. They grumbled and they condemned Zacchaeus and God. They were, in essence, saying he, Zacchaeus, was unworthy, which he is. But what's that saying about them? On the flip side, they are worthy, right? The crowd was saying, this man doesn't deserve it, as if I do. And they also condemned God. Look at the accusation. He, that's Jesus, has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner to lodge with, to take up with a sinner. A sinner is one who is known for his lack of conformity to God's law. They said, they're basically saying because this man was wicked or a sinner, in essence, Jesus is eating the fruit obtained by sin and so it was tainted. This wasn't just an accusation about Jesus loving and befriending sinners. It was also an accusation about Jesus himself. This man, he's gone to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. They were saying Jesus had become wicked because he was partaking of, of Zacchaeus' ill-gotten gains. But was Zacchaeus the same man that he used to be? Was he the same man that they're calling a sinner? Grace bears fruit, doesn't it? If the devil doesn't have you anymore, you shouldn't follow him and live a life like that you he's your friend, right? Look at verse 8. You're immediately catapulted into his home from the grumbling crowd. And in the middle of the meal, Zacchaeus stands up. You ever seen somebody in the middle of a meal and people are talking and they stand up and they, you know, tap their glass? I don't know if he has a glass, but the point is he stands up and he makes a declaration, makes a testimony. He gives testimony. Jesus is the guest, just like he said. Zacchaeus stands and declares the evidence of God's grace coming to him. Notice what he says. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, <laughs> I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. Notice what he calls Jesus. He calls him Lord, Master. Notice what he also does. He shows love for God. He also shows love for his neighbor. I will give half of my possessions to the poor. Now, that's not because he was... An evil, uh, you know, he, he, he got money from, from being a tax collector. That's coming. I will give half of my goods to the poor. He's showing love for his neighbor. And then he says, and 
in verse 8, if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. There is repentance. I will show kindness to those who need mercy, and I will humble myself by acknowledging my sin publicly and by making restitution for anyone I have defrauded. Now, what came first, grace or fruit? Grace. And the result of grace is fruit. Zacchaeus didn't say, Lord, I will give half of my wealth to the poor and I will make restitution for anyone. And Jesus says, good job, son of Abraham. You you have now merited yourself worthy of salvation. Jesus came to the place. He looked at Zacchaeus. He made a divine prerogative. Zacchaeus responded. And now here's the fruit of the grace. What is the evidence that you are like Zacchaeus? It's not a date. It's not signing a card. It's not a prayer that you pray. It's not coming forward. I hope you do all of those things and then some. The evidence that you've been truly converted, truly born again, comes from the life after you've prayed, after you've signed, after you've walked. It's fruit. It's what James declared. Faith. With our, without works is dead. It's what John the Baptist proclaimed. Bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. It's what Jesus preached. By their fruits you shall know them. And finally, grace alone saves. Zacchaeus' testimony brings Christ's declaration. Salvation is declared. Salvation is through faith alone. Found us in verses 9 and 10, and salvation is the work that Jesus came to do. And I told you that his, his name would be important. Jesus says to, to Zacchaeus, Today salvation has come to this house. Do you know what the name Zacchaeus means? It means righteous one. Before, when Jesus called his name, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down. It was a declaration of hypocrisy, but now when the Lord says it, it's speaking true. Righteous one. And how did Zacchaeus become righteous? Look at what he says. Today salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. That's not just by Jew. That's a son of Abraham is a son by faith. Abraham was the father of faith. Paul says not all of Israel is Israel. It's those who come by faith. Just like how do you come to salvation in Christ? It's by faith in in the Messiah. And that's possible because of God's grace. And he ends declaring how all of this happened. Verse 10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Now I want you to turn back to Luke 18:18. 18, because 18. I want to show you something that's profound. Luke 18:18 18, 18 is another story about another rich man. It's the story of the rich young ruler. The story of the rich young ruler is, is one where this man comes to Jesus 
and says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So we know we're talking about salvation. And he basically declares he's kept the second half of the Decalogue. He's, he's done all that he's supposed to do. And Jesus tells him to give away his goods. And the man won't because he is very rich in verse 23. When he heard this, he became very sorrowful because he was very rich. He didn't have joy. He had sorrow. And when Jesus saw that, he became very sorry. And he says, how hard is it for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through an eye of an eedle, speaking in hyperbole. It's impossible for a camel to go through an eye of an eedle, rather than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And look at the response. And those who heard it said, who then can be saved? And look at what Jesus says. He said, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Zacchaeus, behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector and he was filthy rich. Zacchaeus is a contrast to the rich young ruler in the Gospel of Luke. The rich young ruler came to Jesus, could not turn loose of his riches and gain Christ, and so he went away sad. The Lord coming to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus leaves with joy, And Jesus declares it is impossible for a rich man to enter into the kingdom. It's impossible for any man to enter in the kingdom. But what is impossible with man is possible with God. Aren't you glad for grace? 